Okay, let's take our Bibles this morning, and we are concluding today, yes, we are concluding today, 1 Peter. 1 Peter, every time I'm done with the book, I feel like I'm leaving an old friend, because you really get to know the author when you get into the text. And most of the time, the conclusions of books, people don't even preach on, but... Um, I have to turn over every stone, so uh, I have to deal with it. So 1 Peter chapter 5, looking at verse 12 through 14. It says, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, this morning, again, as we come to your incredible word that is so much like a scalpel that cuts deep into the intents and thoughts of our heart and exposes us for who we are and breaks us down and yet always builds us back up always puts us on solid ground, always drives out the error and the lies and replaces it with the truth, giving us stability to be able to live in this world no matter what is going on for Christ and to actually do something for him. So I pray, Lord, that as we conclude this epistle, that the teachings from it would resonate in our mind and heart throughout the weeks and the months and the years ahead of us, that we would always come back to it and be reminded of who we ought to be and what we ought to do. And even when suffering comes our way, it would not be something that would throw us off track, but it would be something which we already know about. We don't think it's strange. And Lord, you never said we wouldn't go through suffering. You promised we would. So Lord, I pray with that information that we would always live for you no matter what, with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, and with all our strength. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to look this morning about some concluding remarks on 1 Peter, and of course, if you noticed in our passage of Scripture, it has, with an ex exclamation mark in at the end of verse number 12, it says, stand firm in it. And so really, these are concluding remarks to stand firm. Now, the apostle thought it was very important when he laid out this book, and the Spirit of God gave him these truths to understand three major areas in times of persecution and suffering, and that is the area of salvation. Got to know you're saved. You got to know what salvation is. 
and then the area of submission. While we're in this world, we have to submit to people. We have to put ourselves willingly underneath them, especially God's ordained authorities. And so we're, we should know how to, how to do that. And then this third area of suffering, there's, a, there's always a mystery uh, connected to suffering that one may never be able to explain fully when you're going through it. It's like trying to explain the diphtheria shot to a three-year-old. They need it. It'll be good for them, but you can't really explain it to them, right? It's the same thing with suffering. Suffering is something that is needed in the Christian life, but it's very hard to be able to explain. In other words, forget the explanation. Just trust God. His character, his promises are worthy of trust. So the solution to suffering and the doubts it raises is not found in arguments or in the questions. It is found in learning to rest and to trust in God's character and power, even when the suffering is mysterious, overwhelming, and when the circumstances defy our understanding, holding on to our confidence in the reality of the power and the presence and the promises of God, these things will lift us in our experience, shed light on what's happening, and cause us to ask ourselves, Lord, what do you want me to do in this situation, and how can I represent you the best in this situation? So the trustworthiness of God is one of the lessons learned best in the crucible of suffering. Last time I ended with these four things that is promised to those who are going through suffering is that God will outfit us, he will confirm us, he will strengthen us, he will enable us, he will establish us. That's what he promised us he will do. And so this area of, of the exhortation for humility, the exhortation for vigilance, and the exhortation for resistance, resisting the enemy, and being able to stand firm in the faith are all our lot as believers while we're in this world. The present circumstances of the Apostle Peter's original audience are believers who are coming under persecution for their faith. The present sufferings were the result of an outburst of fanatical hatred against Christians and satanic opposition against those who are in Christ. And so we see from the scripture that Peter mentioned very clearly, he said to us, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. So Peter points out that suffering is a part of the Christian life, and that God has an imperishable reward for those who trust him. In other words, there's no such thing as a, prom, a problem-free Christianity. You will not find it in Scripture, and you will not find it in genuine Christianity. So Peter's main purpose for writing to exhort, and if you notice in verse number 12, it says that he's writing, exhorting, and testifying to them as he closes his epistle and he's exhorting them, uh, this scattered Christian group of people under fiery trials, to continue to do four things. And I'll just summarize them. 
for you is courage in the faith. He is also uh, saying that you are to have purity toward the world, to stand firm against Satan, and then also to great trust and faithfulness in Jesus Christ. So God knows all that is occurring, and in his eternal plan, will work everything out for the best for his, his glory and for his children. So we must simply trust him and live with our eyes lifted up to heaven, realizing that our home is not here. It's not on earth. It's with the Lord. This is never going to be our home. So there's always going to be a sense of being uncomfortable here. In fact, the more you grow in Christ, the more you mature in Christ, the less comfortable you feel here. Because your, your, your soul begins to yearn for the very presence of God. That's what happens. That's, a, that's what the Spirit of God is doing in our life. So Job said, that, said it like this in the middle of his sufferings in the book of Job, for he performs what is appointed for me, and many such degrees are with him. In other words, he understood that God planned his sufferings for him. He understood that. God plans the crooked as well as the straight. This is often called the providences of God. Providence is an old-fashioned word which comes from the Latin. The last part of this, visitance, really is the word video. It means to see, and pro before that means, of course, before the word pro. So to see beforehand, providence is that marvelous working of God by which all the events and happenings in his universe accomplishes the purpose he has in mind, and nobody can thwart that purpose. Nobody can hold that purpose back. In fact, if you just look uh, and turn forward to Ephesians, you'll find that Ephesians chapter 1, in verse number 11, right there in the beginning of that epistle, Paul says this, Ephesians 1.11, also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. See, that's what the Lord does. He's going to accomplish what he set out to accomplish, and no one, absolutely no one could stop him, and he will carry out all that he says he will. Now, there are four things about providence before I look at our text that I think is important for you and I to know is that providence actually is the plan is perfect that is it will ultimately lead to the greater glory of God also the plan is exhaustive it extends to the smallest most casual things like what was written in Matthew uh, chapter 10 are not the sparrows sold for a cent and yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father the father knows about the sparrow and he knows when the sparrow will fall to the ground. It says in that same passage, and the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So 
Do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. God will definitely take care of the the smallest detail. Also, thirdly, we know that this plan is for our ultimate good, that famous passage of Scripture that most would know if you've been around the Word of God for a while, and we know Romans 8, 28, right? For we know that that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So that's what God will do. And then, of course, the last thing is that it's secret. All right, it's secret. Now, of course, if you're a believer, part of it is secret, but like Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us, the secret things belong to our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the works of the law. So it's secret as far as even when it comes to suffering, we'll not have a full explanation on why all the suffering may come into our life. But we can, like I said, it's about trusting the Lord through it because he is a good and a kind Lord. And that suffering is definitely planned for a purpose. Now, the Old Testament wisdom book of Ecclesiastes, actually Solomon directs our attention to seriously think about God's design of things. When he pens this, In Ecclesiastes 7, verse 13 and 14, listen to what it says. It says, consider the work of God. For who is able to straighten what he has bent? In the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, consider. That means think about it. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man will not discover anything that will be after him. So God has the prerogative to do things secretly and not let us in on everything. But everything we need to know as believers is right in the word of God, all right? We know way more than anyone else who is not a believer and doesn't know the word of God. And we continue to learn every time we open up the word, learn more and more of who God is and what God wants us to do. And that is something that is, is really a blessing and a gift to God's children that we know things. And that's why you look in the Word of God and you'll find that, that little statement, you know, you know, you know, you know. Sometimes I have to say, well, how come we don't know? We ought to know, right? Because we have the Word of God. So God has a significant purpose for providential suffering. He has a significant purpose, and here are some of the purposes that he has. Sufferings are to try us. They are to try us. Also, sufferings are to expose our sins. Sometimes we don't deal with our sins the way we ought to, and God brings in suffering to our life to expose our hearts. And then sufferings are to build character. It is to build character. Right, And so this building up of character is mentioned in Romans chapter 5, verse 3 and 4, where the Bible tells us, and not only this, I think I have it up here, 
It says, but not only this, but we also exalt in our tribulations, knowing that tribulations brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope. So in other words, we can't even have perseverance to the extent that we should have that. We can't even have our character developed unless there's pressure in our life, unless things come into our life that really try us and stretch us and test us to see whether we are believers. And if we are believers, are we really maturing and growing in the Lord? Are we really doing that? See, this word in this passage, tribulation, is used to describe the crushing of grapes and olives to produce sweet wine and smooth oil. The figure suggests that heavy pressure of outward troubles and inward anguish produces patient endurance, the ability to stay with it and not fall apart. That means the pressure brings forth something more suitable and useful for the master. He makes us useful in this world. So the next thing in God's providence is that sufferings are to know God better. Also, sufferings produce fruit in our lives and prepare us for usefulness. In other words, what sufferings often do, it brings us to the place which, which, we, which we are challenged to stop resisting the will of God. Stop saying no to God. Start using your spiritual gift and, and stop sitting there doing nothing. Stop resisting what God wants to do in your life. A lot of times you are frustrated as a believer because you are not doing what God wants you to do. You're resisting his will. You're deciding what things ought to be done instead of God deciding. And so, therefore, you are not responding, so you may stay there, and God may turn up the heat a little bit more until he makes you useful in his church and in his kingdom. All right, and of course, it also, sufferings lead us to make God our all and to prepare us for glory. If you write there in 1 Peter, you find that in verse number, chapter 1 and verse number 4, it says this, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So while we are here on this earth, we have our brothers and our sisters in Christ to pray with, to serve with, to care with, to worship with, and we have, as we all live together in, in light of the imminent return of Jesus Christ. So the Lord really also provides to us, and that's where it brings me to this last section of 1 Peter, he also provides other basic things to enable us to stand when the suffering comes to enable us to stand. And the first thing is this, verse number 12, notice what it says. Through Silvanus, and of course, if you have the ESV, it says Silas, same person, uh, our faithful brother, so I regard him. I have written to you briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. In other words, God gives us people. Right here, 
people that you can count on, actually, who encourages you to stand firm. And, of course, that's part of the church. Sylvanus and Silas are the same person. Sylvanus is the one who is mentioned in Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. And Silas is probably a shortened name for Sylvanus, just to show you the quality of persons that the church of Jerusalem was going to send out with letters because Sylvanus is taking this letter that Peter has written it and distributing it to the churches. You have to be somebody who actually, uh, and it could be also some believe that Sylvanus had the gift of like a, uh, somebody who was an uh, administrator, so possibly he helped Peter pen this epistle. Now that is something that is a possibility because of who he was, but it also, it could be contrasting uh, Sylvanus or Silas with the character of the false teachers who were self-sent instead of God-sent. Now, who was Silas or Sylvanus here? Well, he was a prominent member of the church of Jerusalem. Now, take your Bibles real quick and turn to Acts chapter 15. Let me just show you some of the things the Bible says about this man. Now, here it's meant, he's mentioned in Acts as Silas, and it says, first of all, that he was definitely a leader in the church, Jerusalem church, where it says in Acts 15, verse 22, it says, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Judas called Bersabbas, and Silas leading men among the brethren. So Silas was a leading person within the church. Also in verse 32 of Acts chapter 15, that he was considered to be a prophet, a New Testament prophet, where it says in verse 32, and Judas and Silas, there he is again, being prophets themselves, encouraging and strengthening the brethren with a lengthy message. I like that, lengthy message, all right? To be able to sit there and listen to the preaching of the Word of God and engage yourself with it. That's expository preaching. Not sitting there, you know, with your arms folded in, and, but you're engaged in it, right? And he was a, a New Testament prophet. What did that mean? That he was getting direct revelation from God, and he was telling it to the people, all right? That's what a prophet was. A prophet was somebody who did that, and of course, he was that person too. And then the Word of God tells us also uh, that in chapter 16 of Acts, in verse 26, he was a soldier, all right? It says, men, Acts 16, 26, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a soldier. In other words, that he was in the Lord's army and understood that anything surrounding the preaching of the gospel, the ministry of Jesus Christ, had risk to it. See, we need more risk takers in the body of Christ. And, and I can even say this, he was a Marine. I have to bring that in there, all right? Well, all right, he wasn't a Marine. But, but surely he had a handle on faithfulness because I want to direct your attention to verse number 12 again of First Peter. It says, 
through Silvanus, our faithful brother, right? For so I regard him. The apostle Peter regarded this man, and so did Paul, of course, as a faithful brother. See, the Marine Corps motto is Semper Fidelis. That's Latin for always faithful. See, anyone who, who would sign up with the apostle Paul or Peter would have no guarantee of a cakewalk. So Silas was faithful to the Lord first and then to Paul, as well as we see here to Peter. One translation put it like this, I am sending this note to you through the courtesy of Silas, who is, my, in my opinion, a very faithful brother. Now, I ask a question to you this morning. When God looks at your life, what does he look for? He doesn't look for perfection. So get that out of your head. Being a Christian is not about being perfect. Every person has sinned. Every person has disobeyed God and has been separated from God. Jesus was the only perfect man. He was the perfect sacrifice for our sin. We get our righteousness before God from him, not us. It is by his perfect sacrifice that we are cleansed from sin. So once we become believers, what is God looking for? You know what he's looking for? He's not looking for greatness. He's looking for faithfulness. Can't you be faithful? I mean, I'm talking about, it says in, in the Gospels, if you're faithful with the little things, you know what God says? I'll give you greater things. So in other words, you know what the, you know what the reward for faithfulness, faithfulness is? More work. I know you're, you may be afraid of that, but that is true. If you are faithful in the little things, God will give you more work to do. We need more workers. We need faithful workers. We need, we need people who are going to be just faithful in attendance, faithful to come to Sunday school. Dave's doing this, this tremendous job doing, doing Sunday school, and we don't come. We don't set our time to put the Lord first. See, that, that's not a sign of faithfulness. That's a sign of maybe negligence. God wants his faithfulness. He wants, why does he end this with naming people? Because this guy, Silas, is a guy who encouraged him when Paul was probably, matter of fact, Silas was in prison with Paul on the second missionary journey. Well, you know what? You get pretty close to somebody if you spend some time in prison with them, right? And so Paul says, this guy, Silas, has got what kind of character this guy has. I think Peter's saying, be someone like him. Anybody can be a Silas. Anybody can be this particular man. Why? Because all God is looking for is faithfulness to use your gifts. So when you use your gifts, you encourage other people. When you use your gifts, other people see your faithfulness and see your work you're doing. And when they see that and you do it consistently, you do it through thick and thin, they get encouraged. They said, well, if that person can do it, I can do that too, and that's what I want to do. And when you do that, that's exactly what's supposed to happen. So what happens is you have a bunch of people who are just faithful. Matter of fact, if you ever get a chance to put something on your tombstone, 
put this, he or she was faithful to the Lord and to his people. That's, that probably is the, the highest thing you can put on your uh, gravestone. So God's given us people to encourage us. Be one of those people. Our secondly, if you look in our text, it says in verse number 12, this. The second thing he says is this. That's only bringing up two. All right, the grace that you can rely on uh, to see it through it and enable you to stand. Notice what it says. I have written to you briefly, verse number 12, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So he, again, comes alongside and he's saying to them, listen, this is a true statement of the way God blesses you. And what, is, what does he mean? He means this, that yes, suffering, tribulation, trials is God's grace to you. Well, that don't make sense. Not at least in the flesh it doesn't. But in the spirit, that's exactly what he is saying here. He says, stand firm when these things happen because it's only going to strengthen you. And remember, grace is that goodwill of what God has done. Grace it means that God is, is giving you what you do not deserve, at least initially in salvation. But remember, it's not just saving grace we're talking about. It's sustaining grace. It's grace for every day. Grace that God's going to give you when you need it. You don't need it all the time. You need it, though, when you go through difficult times. See, a Christian, as Christians, we receive sustaining grace. Now, there is something strange, though, here. The Christian experiences the grace of God in a new and, and varied ways when they actually go through suffering, when they go through trials, when they go through difficult times in their life. The experience of that compassionate mercy of God's empowering presence that makes it possible for you and I to live our Christian life in a pleasing manner before the eyes of God. Also, some could have been communicating to the Christians in the midst of their suffering that they were not in the gracious hands of God but they were, in fact, excluded from divine grace because they were going through suffering. Now, that's going to come, and Satan's definitely going to use that one against us, right? So that, in other words, that's a big, fat lie. That's one of the lies that we put up our shield of faith and ward off. See, Christians know the sovereign plan of God includes suffering in difficult times, and when we go through it, they, in fact, experience genuine grace of a loving God. That's what we experience when we go through it. And you know what? I'll say this. You won't experience it until you go through it. Then God will give it to you. So when God looks at your life, while you're, while you're going through trials and suffering, what does he see? He doesn't want to see grumbling or complaining, or cursing under your breath, or justifying your bad behavior, 
or justifying the way you are is because of this or that or because of this person or those circumstances. No. You know what he wants you to do from our passage? God looks for you to stand firm in his sustaining grace. That's what he's looking for. He's looking for faithful people who will stand firm when the pressure is raised in our life and everything seems like it is against us. We're going to trust God. We're not going to change uh, in our attitude toward God, uh, but we are going to rest in him. Now, take your Bibles for a minute, and I want you to see this passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 8 through 10. It was, remember, the apostle Paul was given by God a thorn in the flesh. Remember that? To buffet him. Because remember, Paul was taken up to the third heaven. He saw things he wasn't even able to communicate after he got done with that. And so God gave him a thorn in the flesh for this reason, so other people would not exalt him and put him on a pedestal. But, of course, it must have been something. We don't really know exactly what it is that Paul prayed three times, Lord, please take this away. But I want you to notice 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 8 through uh, 10, it says, concerning this, I implore the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he said to me, look what he says, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me Verse 10, therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distress, with persecution, with difficulties for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, who's strong? Who's strong when you're weak? God, when you're strong, who's not looked at as so strong? God, right? See, when I feel the weakness of life and Maybe suffering will do that more than any other thing in our life. When I feel that, that's when God is going to show you that it is not about your strength. It is about his strength. It is about what he can do in your weakness. And when he does things, when we are the weakest, who gets the glory? He does. That's when people really see God in your life, when those things happen. And so he gives us this grace that causes us to stand firm in, during times of suffering. The next thing he gives us is understanding brethren. Look back at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse number 13. Now, look at what it says there. It says, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. Now, you may be thrown off by that. And uh, you should be in some ways. Because what does he mean, Babylon? All right, well, some people say that Babylon here is that the she is thought of by many to be Peter's wife, to whom reference is made in other passages. Well, that's not the case. Others believe that this verse should read, your sister church here in Babylon salutes you, and so does my son Mark. Now, that's possibility. But Babylon was a... Christian nickname for Rome, all right? It was for a nickname for Rome. So, in other words, the church here at Rome, we could say, 
She is your sister in the Lord, send you, sends you greetings. So in other words, God gives us other brethren who are the elect, as it says in our passage of Scripture. It says in verse 13, and she who is in, is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. Right, so he's talking about those who are the elect. And remember, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, talks about the elect from God's people who have been scattered throughout all the regions. So see, this epistle is written to people who are scattered. They're under persecution. They don't have a home address. They were cast out of the synagogue. A lot of things happen in the Gentile and the Jewish community, which put them in a place where they needed encouragement. And where did they get it from? They got it from the rest of the church. Why? Because the rest of the church understood what they were going through. And so, in other words, the church here at Rome, literally, uh, she who is at Babylon is likewise chosen, is likely, again, that Babylon is a reference to when people of Judah uh, were taken from Jerusalem uh, to be exiled to Babylon, referring to God's people living as pilgrims and exiles in a foreign land. Remember in the Old Testament that when the Babylonians came again against southern kingdom of Israel or Judah, that they pulled them into a foreign country because of their sin. God raised up a country, brought them into that country, and they lived there as pilgrims and aliens. So this reference to Babylon brings one's mind back to, hey, this has not been a new thing that God often puts his people in a place where they are pilgrims and exiles in a foreign land. And that's how we kind of feel like when we're on this earth. So God gives the church. He gives the church gives greetings to those who are going through suffering. Why? Because they're going through the same thing. They understand it, right? But look at the next person it says. It says, and also my son Mark. Now, you, you may ask yourself, maybe you, don't, you won't ask yourself, but I did, is that why is Sylvanus or Silas and Mark mentioned in this passage of Scripture? Well, let me just say, let you know about what's going on here. This mark here uh, is they're mentioned together because when Mark abandoned the Apostle Paul, it was Sylvanus or Silas that took his place. Now they are both mentioned as faithful and profitable servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, but for John Mark, that was not the case. John Mark, on the first missionary journey, abandoned Paul, all right? And the reason why he abandoned him, at least the reasons that we can gather from Scripture, is that on the second missionary journey, uh, Paul was going to go into Asia Minor and travel into a part of the region that was known to be dangerous. There were uh, notorious ambushes. There were bandits. There were robbers that were there. And it says this in Acts chapter 13, verse 13. It says, Now Paul, his companion, put out to sea at Papus and came to Perga and Pan Pan Panphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on to Perga, he, they arrived at Pisidia and Antioch. Pisidia and Antioch. Now, in other words, John got cold feet. Probably he was not mature enough 
to be involved with what was going to happen on that next leg of journey. But if you go back into the book of Acts, you know you're going to find out that John Mark was right there when this church started. He was right there in the church of Jerusalem when all these people are getting saved. He was right there when the apostle Paul was rescued from the prison and was knocking at the door of Mary, which was his mother, and they were all gathered there praying. John was right there. In other words, John grew up in the church. He, he was around some of the greatest apostles. He was around the, the mighty working of God. And yet, what's going on here? He finally said, you know what? I, I don't think I could do this. And he bolted in his immaturity and left him. All right, who takes his place? Silas. A soldier takes his place, right? Because that's what Paul was going to need on this next leg of journey. All right, but what is so interesting is this, that not only does Peter mention him, but Paul, after he deserted Paul, John Mark is now accepted by the Apostle Paul and by the Apostle Peter. And in fact, this is what it says about John Mark from Paul writing to young Timothy. He says, only Luke is with me. Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. So in other words, some believers may start off their Christian life pretty well, and then all of a sudden rocky times come, and they start waffling in their commitment to Christ, and therefore they get knocked off their base, and they, instead of being a faithful servant, they become hindrance to, to God's faithful servants, and that's what happened to Mark. But somewhere down the line, he grew, he became stronger, he wrote the gospel of Mark, right? And now he's profitable for service by the Apostle Paul, and now mentioned here in Scripture as someone who is greeting the churches, who's encouraging the churches, so Mark matures and becomes profitable for Christian service. So Mark redeemed himself and proved himself to be a real soldier. And at the end, Paul wanted John Mark in his foxhole. You know, when we say, I want you in my foxhole, you know what it means? When you get in the foxhole, that means the bullets are already flying, right? If you don't get in there, you're going to get shot. So you dig a hole and get in there, and hopefully a bomb doesn't fall on you, right? But... One thing that you learn as a soldier is there's some people you don't want in your foxhole because they don't pay attention to things, they're sloppy, and they may get you both killed in the foxhole. I want somebody in my foxhole I can trust, who got my back, who can take care of me if I get wounded, and I'll do the same for him. That's what I want. See, that Sylvanus and John Mark, that's who they were. They were people that you would want in your foxhole. Maybe not in the beginning, but as God matured them, uh, he brought them to the place, well, yes, I want this person with me. And so he was foxhole material. Here's a question I have for you. Are you foxhole material? Are you foxhole material? Can I depend on you to pray for me and me pray for you? Can I depend on you when service needs to be done, you're there? no matter what. See, can, can, can the Lord depend on us to be in the foxhole when the bullets start flying? 
and zinging over your head? Or are we going to run? Are we going to run and say, I'm, I'm, I didn't sign up for this. I'm out of here, like Vladimir, all right? See, how are we going to respond? So, so in, in, in all these passages of Scripture, as he closes this epistle, he's, in, he's encouraging the church to be faithful, to be encouraging to other brethren by their service, to be strong soldiers, to stand firm and be in the foxhole. And then he, he ends it like this in verse number 14. He says this. There, there's this, this one last thing he mentions, but he mentions three things in verse number 14. He says this, greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Now, as I looked at this, I think that what's going on here is that he's saying to them, listen, what this, is, this is what else God gives you. He gives you mutual love. He gives you deeper peace that the world could never have, and he gives you secure position where he mentioned in Christ that strengthens you to stand firm. Now, look what it says is there. It says, greet one another with a kiss of love. Now, that was the, the standard greeting back then. In fact, if you go to the Middle East today, you'll find in other countries that is the greeting where people would kiss you know, people on their forehead or their cheeks, uh, not, not, necessarily, not on their lips or anything like that, but that would be a form of saying, you know, greeting them. Today, of course, some have translated this, give each other a handshake of Christian love, right? Or my friend who has bad arthritis in his hands, he, he, instead of putting his hands out, he, he, we butt knuckles and we say, so that's a, because we're greeting each other. And really why we're greeting each other is not only to say hi, but we're in Christ together. We're, we're in the work together, all right? So love is really the primary Christian virtue. But now faith, hope, love abides, uh, love it's, uh, abides these three. Uh, the greatest of these, of course, is love. The virtue, uh, this virtue is the only, uh, can only be displayed to a degree. Uh, the Christian themselves have been profoundly touched by God's love in Christ. So the first object of our love, of course, is the Lord himself. But we do know that a growing love for God will expand and increase our love for people. It's not reversed. If you thought you loved people before, you didn't. When you learn the love of Christ and the Spirit of God teaches us the love of Christ, and that love, of course, is a, always a sacrificial love. It's always esteeming others higher than ourselves. When we learn that, then we have an increase of love for people, people who are our immediate brothers and sisters in the faith because they're believers. All peoples from all tribes and nations are our brothers and sisters in Christ that you and I love when we are thanking God for one another, when we are praying for one another, when we are serving one another, when we are living holy before one another, when we are practicing love to each other, we are all fleshing it out. In other words, it was the Apostle Paul who said after very heavy doctrines in Romans, he says this in Romans 13.8, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. So if you owe anything, that's what you owe as a believer. You owe your love towards others in Christ. For he who loves his neighbor, 
the Bible says, will fulfill the law. And what does love do toward a brother and sister in Christ? Well, from 1 Corinthians 13, it suffers long. It's kind. It does not envy or promote itself. It is correct in its behavior. It is not selfish. It is not easily provoked. It does not think evil. No one, no one has a corner on this characteristic. We all need to grow in our love for the Lord and each other. And as our knowledge of Jesus Christ deepens, your love for him will deepen. And then when Christ takes up residence in the the center of, of our personality and the seat of our affections and our thoughts and our understanding and our volition will be moved when Christ becomes the dominating factor of our whole life, controlling it and directing it. And be sure of this, that a genuine and deep perception of the love of Christ rarely, rarely comes to a person who is not spending time in scriptures and in prayer and in growing in their faith. They know nothing of it to some extent. But then it says in, back in 1 Peter 5, 14, peace to you all in Christ. So not only do we have an experience of mutual love, but we have a deeper experience of peace. Now, why would that be? Why, why would a believer have a, a, a greeting of saying, peace be to you all who are in Christ? Well, it is because peace is a gift from God for us to experience and to enjoy. The war, everybody's looking for peace. I'm talking about peace inside, right? How do you get peace inside your heart? You get peace inside first to be at peace with God, right? That's how you first do, get it. So the firm awareness that there is nothing between you and God but peace, a peace found with God only through Jesus Christ our Lord a peace that comes by his shed blood that washes away our sin, makes us clean before the Father, and the Father now gives us his spirit, and that in turn gives us the ground to have a peace that no one could take away. Second thing is that we not only have the peace, we have peace with God, but we have the peace of God. The firm awareness that you have God's peace within your soul. It's like what the, is written in the Philippians. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So, see, the peace of God transcends all understanding. In other words, God's peace in your soul is like a platoon of special force warriors guarding the entrance to your home, to your mind, preventing any enemies that would disrupt that peace to enter. It is a peace that is from above, therefore rises above the difficulties that you may find yourself and surrounds you with this undefinable rest in your soul that comes from your relationship to Jesus Christ. And of course, leaving your entire concentration on 
being able to live the Christian life in a pleasing manner. And then, of course, not only do you have peace with God and the peace of God, you now have peace with others, all right? The firm awareness that you do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Peace with others from all different social classes, all different ethnicities. That means the fight is not with each other. Romans 12, 18 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. So I have the ability, because I'm a believer, because you're a believer, to actually have peace with people I, in the future, or in the past, used to have war with, or didn't like, or I couldn't have them in my presence. But now that the Lord's given me peace and changed my whole perspective on people and who they are, Right? We all got red blood run through our veins, right? We're all created in the image of God. So therefore, who are the people I am to express love to and peace with? Everyone. It says in Hebrews, pursue peace with all men and sanctification which out, without which no one will see the Lord. And see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. So those are the things the Lord gives us. He gives us people to count on. He gives us grace, his grace to rely on, especially during times of suffering. He gives us understanding brethren who are going through the same things we are and can greet us properly, and then he gives us his love, he gives us his peace, and he gives us security. And, of course, that word security is found in the word all you who are in Christ. Once you are in Christ, no one can take you out of Christ. You are secure there. So there is a security in Christ. And so now what, do I, what should you and I do? Go stand firm. That's the whole point. Stand firm. Keep going. Keep serving. Keep learning. Keep being useful. Keep being faithful. Be a person who you can get into the foxhole with someone else and do the work and come out of there, bring glory to God. The end. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday. Remember, you're going to have opportunities this holiday to see people in your family that are not believers. Pro start praying today that God would allow you to open up your mouth boldly to be able to share the mysteries of the gospel with them and that the Spirit of God would give you that divine opportunity to bring the gospel to them and that he would use that either to plant a seed, to water a seed, or to bring the increase, right? He wants to use you to do that. So don't forget that as we come. Now let's stand together. Let's stand and let's recite this passage together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2 to 4. Let's start. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved of his choice of you. And God's, all God's people said what? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your people. We thank you, Lord, for your church. And Lord, I guess every day if we got up and we made a list of things we would be thankful for, I guess we would not, we would have to run out of paper. So Lord, make us that mindful of all the blessings in our life. And Lord, I pray as we consider these things this morning that you would truly make us people who are like Sylvanus and like Mark and like those people that this epistle was written to back then, that we would stand firm in what we believe and in the faith and be useful in the kingdom of God. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.